turn of the century, previous century, the mother gave a message on Shirobindo. She says in one of her uh, observations, what Shirobindo represents in the world's history is not a teaching, not even a revelation, but a mighty action straight from the Supreme. And we may wonder what kind of action is it. Am I audible, uh, incidentally? <coughs> right behind. Otherwise, you can just come in front. And it's fine. So what is it that, uh, you know, when we think of action, we think of uh, people going out, moving around, giving lectures, talks. We think of something very physical, outward, because that's what is the field of our human experience. But there is a mighty action which was silently taking place, a kind of a revolution in a small little town, uh, almost a sleepy town of South India, Pondicherry. And some of us must have heard about it and some of us may not have. And to understand the import of that action, we have to just go a little backward in time. At the beginning of the previous century, when we find that life and yoga are as if turned away from each other. They are like a couple who are forever divorced. Couple because they can't live without each other. The yogi needs to be in the body. He sustains himself physically. He has his own uh, uh, need of earthly existence. And the the man who is very much in matter feels need of something of, of the divine, something of God, something which is more than him to sustain, to give a purpose and sense or meaning of his life. So they are a couple, but they don't interact with each other. Life is life, yoga is yoga. So we had the traditional divide at the beginning of the previous century when to be a yogi or to be a mystic or to take to the spiritual life, we had to leave material existence. The ideal was typified in the man who went into the Himalayas, did some kind of tapasya, certain kind of practices, asceticism, and uh, discovered some kind of great truth by these processes. On the other hand, this was one kind of a man who had to renounce the worldly life. Of course, we had the ideal of, uh, you know, the grahastha sannyasin, but that was a rarity, it was more as a preparation ultimately to depart into the beyond. On the other hand, there was the man who was in material life, in material existence, who could at best maybe revert the man who was a yogi, maybe idolize the mystic, but never quite live like him. There was always a divide. There was a kind of contradiction as if by the very nature of things, that you have to be either on this side or on that side and the advantage that was taken off of this whole process, you know, we had priests who came into existence all over the world who mediated between those who were on this side and those who were on the other side, but there was a divide. Therefore we saw in the beginning of the previous century science and spirituality fighting with each other, a battle which carried on almost in the middle. I mean, I remember when I was growing up, people uh, spoke with very convincing voices that according to science, God does not exist. And with an equal emphasis, the man of spirit turned back upon science and said, all your world is nothing but an illusion, a maya. And uh, it was as if the battle would forever remain, it will remain irreconcilable. Till we find that by the end of the last century, things are turning the other way around. It's suddenly as if the couple who were forever divorced begin to look at each other and they are getting enamored and attracted of each other. What, what, is this, what is this kind of change which is taking place in the human consciousness? We have men of spirit, men who have dedicated their life to the spirit, descending into life, moving in life. The Swami needs the airplane to walk, to, to come all the way to America. He can't just, you know, fly across because this is how life has organized itself. It's an age of globalization. He can't just remain confined to Sanskrit. He speaks just English. So all kinds of things are happening which is turning the face of the yogi towards earth. Equally we find that the spiritual man is suddenly discovering that, oh, after all, all that makes sense. When we probe into atom, we discover that there is 
Nothingness. What is this nothingness? Is this what is illusion? So there is a tendency for the man of science to begin to study spirituality more and more. Uh, I think uh, a lot of laboratories are conducting tests on the yogis and, and on yoga. Mysticism has stepped out of the caves and is walking into common life and fortunately not in the robe of the traditional sannyasi. This is one thing very good today that uh, today we have the uh, children of the new age who don't uh, dress in a very traditional way but are much more spiritual deep inside if we really associate spirituality not with an external ritual but with a state of being. They are much more wide inside, they are much more true, truthful inside, much more uh, courageous inside in many ways. So this is a kind of change taking place where life and yoga which were, you know, as if facing away from each other have turned around and begun to look at each other. They are trying to understand each other. They are trying to intermingle. They are trying to reach out to each other. This is a kind of a silent action taking place uh, in, as I said in Pondicherry, when at the beginning of the previous century, Shobindo writes, talking about life and yoga, that all life, if we look behind the surface appearances, is a vast yoga of nature. After all, what is life? Why do we feel that the two are opposed to each other? The reason is that we try to associate life with certain kind of activities. When we talk of life, we think of my life, your life. And my life, immediately we think of certain activities which we are accustomed to. Life means growing up, it means about earning, it means about studying, it means about uh, uh, you know finding, finding a partner, having children, owning a car, a house, etc. etc. Uh, on the contrary, yoga is also, when we talk of yoga, we have in our mind a set of outer rituals and practices. The traditional yogi is a man who, you know, wakes up at a particular time, does certain kind of fasts and puchas and engages in certain esoteric practices. Uh, certain, he, is, uh, he has given himself to a certain set of formulas and processes. And the two appear so different that when we look at the surface, we find that there is no way they can meet. But like all things which on surface are different, but one when we go to the core, when we look at life and yoga and try to reach their core, we find there is a common aspiration. What is this common aspiration which life holds? Right from childhood. We have to go nowhere. We don't have to study a book for that. We have to just read this book of life which we seldom seem to read. We read a lot of books and we are all you know, very intelligent people. We are well informed people. But there is a book of life that we fail to read. And what is this book which is telling us? If we look at a child and his growth, we can just take a small little example to study and understand what is the seeking of life. A little child, as a baby, looks upon his parents and believes that well, they are the best parents, the, you know, they are, they are the best people in the world, they are, they are almighty, they are capable of everything, they know everything. My papa knows everything, literally a child believes. And tell a child that no, papa has his own limits and mummies can get angry. It's difficult for a child to understand because they are the best people in the world and why not? But as the child grows, we find that there is this illusion tends to break apart. And he begins to look for that perfection which he was trying to find in parents into someone else, his friend, his peers his husband, his wife, oh, he is the person or she is the person who best understands me. She loves me best. She is the most understanding, most caring, and he is the one who can really protect me all my life. He can make my life secure. Now, once again, the seeking is the same, but it changes names and faces. This is a seeking in life. And sure enough, few years down the line, the illusion tends to drop off. And then, we try to find in our child, my child is the best child in the world. He is going to fulfill all that I could never find. And yeah, please come, please come, please come and join. <clears throat> so there is a constant seeking in life and perhaps by the time we are uh, 80 or 70, we perhaps begin to see behind the masks. We begin to see that all these were but masks. Where is the fulfillment that I have sought in life? I have not found it here, I have not found it there. 
And unfortunately, when we should actually be applying for the graveyard, we begin to you know, apply for the, the car that would take us to heaven, the nearest bus to Nirvana, the cheapest ticket which can you know, assure us the beyond, and that's what life tends to become. There is a small little you know, uh, story which typifies this kind of an approach in life, you know, the seeking of life and what happens to it. There was a man who visited a uh, psychiatric hospital and he saw a young man who was constantly sighing in a state of depression, constantly crying out, Oh, Usha, oh, Usha. So he asked the psychiatrist, what's wrong with this man? He said, no, he was in love with one Usha and as you know, you know, he couldn't get married to her and he's unhappy and he's, uh, you know, full of depression. Oh, it happens sometimes in life and he moved a few beds ahead and there is another man once again crying out, Usha, Usha, Usha. So what's wrong with this man? This Usha seems to be creating a lot of heartbreaks and he replies, no, no, this is a little different story. This man married Usha. <laughs> it's like both ways he realized there is a lesson in life which constantly we are learning. We just feel life is a question of events. From this circumstance we move to that circumstance. But if we really look what is happening behind life, we see that there is a growth taking place. Very, very small imperceptible growth through little experiences. Sometimes the little experiences of life teach us much more than probably lectures and books and maybe, you know, visiting all kinds of places. Just a little experience. And if we are really attentive, if we are really perceptive, we just pick up that which is so necessary. And many times when we look at our own lives, we find that the greatest growth took place, not when we were in the company of a particular book necessarily, but we, when we received just a little blow that changed us from inside as if something broke open and we entered into some kind of a whiteness. So, some kind of a liberation. So, what is this seeking of life? Shirobindo, you know, in the life divine, beautifully brings out that life is not seeking something other than what the yogi is seeking. It's not that the, the seeker of the life is seeking something else. He is seeking the very same things, it's just that he is seeking them in a different way. And uh, at the beginning of the previous century, Shirobindo writes in the Life Divine, the earliest preoccupation of man, and so it seems, is inevitable preoccupation, for it returns after every period of skepticism and banishment. There is a preoccupation of man, right down the millenniums, which is there. And what is it? It is an earliest formula of wisdom in his awakened thought, which also represents the highest and the last that his thought has ever envisaged. What is it that we find constantly running through the stream of life? An aspiration for bliss, pure and unmixed bliss, an aspiration for truth, an aspiration for love, an aspiration for immortality, an aspiration for perfection, terrestrial perfection, an aspiration that one day life on earth will be beautiful. If we look at life, this is the common story. Otherwise, at the surface, it is no doubt a story too commonly told, too often repeated, which appears quite meaningless, as Shakespeare said, a tale full of sound and fury, but signifying nothing. But that's life on the surface. As, uh, as there was a king who wanted to read the history of the world. So he asked his, his wazir, his minister, that please write for me the history of the world. So now history of the world is a very big thing. It took him almost 15 years to study and after 15 years he came with 10 volumes each on 10 donkeys. You know, on top of donkeys there were 10 volumes stacked. So by then the king had grown a little older and he said, look, I mean, this much I can't read. Come on, have a heart, try to compress it. So he goes back, spends another 10 years, comes back with five donkeys, five volumes each. But now the king has a failing vision, he has thick glasses and it's difficult for him to read all that. So he says, please, try to do it a little more, you know. Uh, it's difficult for me now to concentrate, my senses fail me, 
I have developed diabetes and arthritis and hypertension and everything, name a disease in the world, and I have failing vision. And doctors say it is retinopathy. So please compress it. So again, another 10 years, and it's three donkeys, three volumes each. King says, I understand you have taken great pains, but can you just make one last attempt to make it still smaller? And lo and behold, the very next day, the minister comes, sir, I have done it. So, oh, you have done it so fast? He says, yes, all these years of studies has taught me one thing. And I have the history book in my pocket. So that's it. That's small. He takes out and reads out just three small sentences. Men were born, they lived, they died. He says, if you really want to reduce the history to a very small Men were born, they lived, they died. You know, it amounts to that. But the beauty is, you know, if we look behind surface appearances, it's true that men were born, they lived, they died. But it's also true that humanity lived on and it grew and grows and grows. In so many ways it grows. Now this is the inner story of life. There is an outer story of life with which we are too familiar. And when we look at it only on the surface, we are prone to say it's all an illusion. But when we look deep behind, we see that there is persistent, despite the so-called illusion, something in us which aspires for divinization of life here upon earth. We keep saying that life is full of suffering and we have so many nice uh, philosophies built out of suffering from Sophocles in the West to you know, people in the East who have made a gospel out of suffering. But then, ask any man, he will give a very nice lecture that life is all about illusion and suffering and tell him, all right, uh, sir, I have just learned that uh, tomorrow, you know, if Yama were to send him a telegram that please come over, your days are over, death sends a message, express message, uh, he is not going to take it lightly because something within us instinctively seeks immortality. Because something within us knows it is immortal. Even a person who is in intense pain and suffering yet aspires for bliss. Even a person who is met nothing but distrust in life yet seeks love. This is the beauty of life. Even though informational knowledge changes every year. We have the journals coming out, especially in my field, medicine. We have a drug which is, you know, taken to the sky high. It's the best drug and the drug companies do everything to promote it. The best drug turns the worst the very next year. And we have a whole lot of literature now saying that it has side effects. Sometimes I wonder whether it's commerce or knowledge it drives. But nevertheless, in spite of that, man keeps on discovering that little wonder pill which is going to rejuvenate him, which is going to really heal him, help him, give him health, freedom from disease, freedom from suffering. It's instinctive in human nature. This is the journey of the inner life. And when we look at it, a point of time comes when this journey, which is taking place unconsciously, begins to become conscious. That which is immortal in our mortal poverty, that which is sustaining us through the ages, despite the fall, despite the struggle, despite the difficult image of the world, despite the wars, despite the pralayas, Despite the chaos in which the civilization is thrust again and again, something within us keeps on seeking that maybe this time, maybe this time, maybe this time, there will be the kingdom of heaven, there will be truth and bliss upon earth, there will be life, there will be love, there will be hope. This seeking, which is unconscious, a point comes when in human being it becomes conscious. This is the point when the subconscious yoga in nature becomes a conscious yoga. Yoga is not about some mystical processes. They are there. They are necessary. But mystical processes don't lead to yoga. Yoga is a need above all. A thirst, an aspiration. This is one thing that Shurabindu brings out very, very beautifully when he talks about the integral yoga and his methods. That one may do a whole lot of processes. We have a new form of yoga which comes every year. And sometimes yoga will promise a 14 days release into nirvana. No, because everybody likes the McDonald's form of yoga. There's something which can give you an instant release. And uh, you know, there was a, a little story about this kind of yoga. 
that uh, there was a man practicing yoga and uh, he wanted to go to Himalayas as sometimes yogis get this idea of going to Himalayas though it is the inner Himalaya that we have to explore and as he is going into the Himalayas he tells his disciples that please carry on and I know you can take care of everything disciples say sure uh, sir I have learnt everything I have observed you very very attentively for the last 10 years and I know all about yoga so you don't worry please go be at peace I will carry on 10 years he roams in the Himalayas but as is human nature Himalayas doesn't satisfy him so he comes back he comes back to see how his disciple is doing and that day there is a great festivity in the town and they say that today is a great day when uh, <coughs> our master is going to perform a special Billy Yagna Billy Yagna is a cat sacrifice so it's some form of yoga which a great master has started now when he asks what is this great master's name he is surprised to hear his own name <laughs> this master had started a great cat sacrifice yoga so he is wondering what is this yoga which I don't know and he finds this man who has started this whole organized this whole you know Billy Yagya or the cat sacrifice and as soon as he sees him he goes down to the master and says master so nice you have come on this auspicious day where in your name I am commemorating a yoga center dedicating it to you master says all that is fine but uh, I don't understand what you are doing he says, Lord, you have only taught me all this. This is the path to yoga which you have taught me. He says, what is the path to yoga? He is curious. He begins to watch. So as the drama unfolds itself, there is a brown cat which is brought and tied to a post. And a little milk is kept in front of it. And suddenly all kinds of, you know, music starts and prayer starts and hymns start dedicated to the little cat. So all, all this is over. The master is a decent man. He doesn't interrupt. At the end of it, he asks, what is it? He says, but you have taught me this. He says, what is it? I have to recollect. He says, every time when you used to sit, I used to notice that before closing your eyes, very religiously, you would tie this little brown cat and offer little milk to it and then close your eyes. And I could see that all the power of your tapasya lay in this outer act. Master says, oh fool of your heart, I had a cat, I didn't want it to disturb for my meditation. So I used to offer a little milk to it so that it's busy with itself and I can meditate quietly. You saw the cat and you missed out what is happening inside me. So the first thing we have to understand is yoga is not about some uh, exercises which you know, now there is another conception of yoga that you do, you know, you distort your body in every possible way and you are a great yogi. Now, all that is alright, you know, there is nothing wrong with that. But yoga is this need which is going on in man. It's about this aspiration. It's about this human journey, the evolutionary journey. And it is there in Vedanta. If you look at the deep inside the, the, the Vedantic thought, we find that Human life is seen as an evolutionary journey. And who is evolving? It's not man who is evolving. It's God who is evolving. It's something very beautiful. Taylor de Chardin made a very interesting remark. We are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. And we find it in the symbol of avatars, the story of the ten avatars. Shurvinda points out, that if we see the sequence, it's very clear it's an evolutionary journey, it's an evolutionary parable. So, to begin with, God becomes fish. So, he is fish in the water. And uh, he has come to rescue the Vedas. When, when, when the king asks fish, what, are you, what have you come here for? So, the fish says very strangely, you know, I have come to rescue the Vedas. Now, you know, how is the fish going to rescue the Vedas? And then this fish becomes a creature that is little in the sea and little on the land, the kurma, the turtle, the tortoise. We need this chain in biology. And then God is not satisfied with just being on the land and the sea like an animal. He becomes the wild boar who rescues the earth again. And this wild boar is on the land, absolutely active, free, moving around. But God is not happy with just this form. So he evolves and he becomes 
a little man and a little animal, the nursing, the the human lion or the lion man who is born, you know, in, in, who is born to again protect the earth. And that's not the end of the journey. So he becomes the dwarf man, who is small in stature, but, but wants to conquer the earth and the heavens in one leap. And uh, I suppose that much of humanity is still the dwarf man, the little man, who nevertheless wants to conquer the earth and the heavens. But evolution doesn't stop here. God is not satisfied just with being a dwarf man. So he becomes the man who is active, the explorer, the adventurer, the Parshuram, who with, his, with the power of his soul goes around this entire earth. And that's not enough. He becomes the idealized man, the man who is sattvic, culture, refined, who is full of thought, who is full of harmony within him. And even that is not the end of the journey. He moves further and becomes the man who goes beyond mere humanness, who transcends our humanity and becomes divine, dancing with this world in a manifold in love, delight and sweetness. So this is the evolutionary journey. But where does it stop? Does life have a meaning? Does it have a purpose? And here again we find something very unique about Shirobindo's thought. He does not say that uh, life is an accident, you know, spiritual or chemical. There is very little difference. If we take the traditional viewpoint about, you know, 100 years back, the scientists declare life is a chemical accident. They are still holding on to it, but there is a section of science uh, who is beginning to feel that, well, it doesn't seem to be an accident. I mean, the famous book written by Dr. Watson of the Watson Creek fame, Francis Creek, where he talks about life itself. He says, it's impossible to believe that life could evolve by random accident out of matter. So he has given a new theory that, uh, of course it's not a new theory, this theory has been given by others, that life came from outer planet and was implanted here. Shobindo says that does not uh, once again answer the question, because the question is not whether life came here from outer planet or evolved here. The issue is how did life come into existence at all from matter? How did it suddenly, suddenly matter, suddenly these atoms, these electrons, these seemingly insensible charges begin to crawl, begin to breathe, begin to grow, begin to replicate, begin to expand, begin to climb, begin to fly. How does life come into existence? And Shirobindo once again says it's because of the yoga of the divine going on in matter that the new possibility emerges out of matter, the possibility of life the possibility of ascent of matter to a level higher. But it doesn't stop there. Again, we have the same problem. Suddenly, the animal who is occupying the plains and the mountains, somewhere, some sometime, we don't know the time, where it happened, but he begins to think. He begins to, begins to draw paintings with charcoal. He begins to feel music in the climbing of the stones. He begins to hope, he begins to aspire, he begins to have visions of God. Now what is this? Once again we see that life begins to change. Matter begins to change from living matter into thinking matter. A kind of thinking matter. Matter which can think, matter which can hope, matter which can consciously manipulate life. So this is another level of evolution which takes place in life. But is this the end of the journey? Should we declare that God is so uncreative that the, the most creative being that he, he could evolve was man? There are theories which say that, that man is the highest of creation. And uh, man is true, he is highest as of now. But if this is the ultimate creativity of God, one suspects the creativity of you know, Because we know what we are, we don't have to ask anyone. And if this is the ultimate that God can create, then surely either he is poor in his creativity or perhaps we have not read the full script. Now Shirobindo comes to tell us that there is a hidden pages of the script of God which we have not read. We have read only part of the script, the evolution from matter till man. And this is not the end of the journey. This is something very, very revolutionary in Shirobindo's thought that he says man is a transitional being. <coughs> 
man is a transitional. Up till now we find a very, very echo in the Vedanta. The Vedanta also speaks about the evolutionary journey of the soul. The soul evolves from birth to birth. That is the real significance of rebirth. Rebirth in its original idea is not about reward and punishment. God is not like a corporate sector CEO who is busy giving carrots and uh, sticks to depending on you know whether we are good or bad people. I mean such a God would again be not different, much different from us and surely he is a little more loving, a little more compassionate and little more wiser than us. So there is in Vedanta we find that up till now the human journey evolving, the soul within us evolving through different forms arrives at a point in human being where we consciously begin to seek the source and origin of ourselves. Who we are? Who am I? Why have I come from? And that's the time when we regard life as a illusion. It's just a transitory point. It is not the end. It's not the culmination of quest. There is a very beautiful poem of Shabindo where he captures this feeling. He says, there is a need within the soul of man the splendors of the surface never sate for life and mind and their glory and debate are a slope renewed to a vaster theme, a preface to the epic supreme. This climb does not stop here, it goes on. And that's where Shirobindo brings this new idea, this revolutionary idea in, in spirituality or in materialism, either ways we look at it, it's a new idea both ways that evolution is taking place on the basis of matter. Divine is playing with matter. It is not some devil who is playing with matter. And he is bringing out, he has hid himself in matter. And he is bringing out new and new possibilities of matter. And it's not going to stop with a half-baked, half-finished product like man, who is little more than a cross between the demigod and the beast. Another point describing man says the cross between the demigod and the beast. His mass is buried in the animal mire. Freedom he asks, but needs to live in bonds. Finding himself, he thinks it other than him. So this is human nature, that he asks for one thing, but he always has his past buried in another thing. Mother puts it very, very directly. She says, man has one leg in animality, the other in humanity, yet is a candidate for divinity. This divinity is not by annihilating the very basis of man. Shubhinda says that you don't have to leave earthly existence to realize the divine. In fact, divine is not something to be realized by going somewhere. Because he is not somewhere, he is everywhere. This is the fundamental truth of Vedanta. In fact, according to Vedanta, there is nothing else but that. There is no other thing, there is no second thing. It's just that the materialist looks at the same thing through one set of glasses, the spiritualist looks at the same thing through another set of glasses, the religionist of different religions look at the same thing through a third set of glasses and these are the glasses which are called in the Vedantic uh, literature ignorance. It is the glasses, our little angle of the ego, our little past, our little present through which we are looking at the same thing. There are no two things in this world, there is only one thing. And the first thing is this ignorance has to drop off. This is the fundamental liberation. It's not liberation from objects. Objects don't bind us. We bind ourselves. There is a little beautiful story. Somebody went to a master and he went with flowers. It's very nice to carry flowers when you go to God. And of course we carry all kinds of things also. We give little flowers and along with that there is a little chit. Please, my agenda. Take care of it. You know, I have bought you flowers for hundred dollars or ten dollars. Please see to it that everything goes fine. And nothing wrong with it. But I'm just saying that you know he, he went with a he went with a handful of flowers and and the master told him, drop it. So he drops the flowers. So the master says, Drop it, I said. So he doesn't know what to drop, so he drops his hands and he's all attention. Master said, I said, drop it. So he says, What shall I drop now? He says, drop yourself. That's the problem. That it is this little self in which we are dwarfed. Shubhinda very beautifully in Savitri says, O force compelled, fate driven, earth boundaries, prisoners of a dwarf humanity. No amount of, you know, we cannot get liberated by any amount of 
material contraptions. They are nice, they are necessary, but we should learn them to be their masters and not their slaves. So he says, O oh, force compelled, fate driven, earth born race, prisoners of a dwarf humanity, how long will you tread the circling tracks of mind? But not for a changeless littleness where you meant, not for vain repetition where you built. This transient earthly being, if he so wills, can fit his acts into transcendent schemes. He who now stares at the world with ignorant eyes can fill these orbs with the immortal light. That is your in the truest sense. To look at the world, not turn away from it, but look at it not with ignorant eyes. Look at it with light of the immortal spheres. To relate with the world, not relate with it ignorantly as we do now through the ego, which is constantly heard. There is constant friction. We light up either ways on this side of the bed or the other side, crying for our little Usha, which you know always escapes us because ultimately here is the Usha. We have to discover it. When we do that, we find Usha everywhere. There is none. That is the love to discover that and to live by that, to relate with the whole universe. One doesn't have to fear people, one doesn't have to fear uh, differences of expressions, differences of opinions, differences of outlook, because this is in the other one also. There is no two, there is one. A very beautiful issue with the poem says, All are deceived, do what the one power dictates. And in this poem, he ends up very beautifully My rival's downfall is my own disgrace. I look at my enemy and see Krishna's face. There is no other face to be seen in this world. There is the face of the one beloved who constantly dwells. So the first yoga is to rip off all this curtain and to discover. Then life becomes beautiful. We don't turn away from it. We associate and we associate with it divinely. We don't associate it with ignorantly as we do now. He is everywhere because he alone is. There is nothing else. Similarly, with truth, instead of finding it by studying the surface appearances, by the many masks, we begin to discover truth, which is there behind everything. It's the essence of everything. That's why one of the definitions of Brahman is knowing which all else can be known. All else can be known by knowing that. It's very, very fascinating because everything is from that. That's a little seed from which everything comes out. And that is also the solution to the human problem. Not a turning away, not a running away, not an escape. Because then we have not solved the problem. We have simply <coughs> cut it off. And we have cut it off for ourselves. It's, it's a kind of a selfish act. We cut off egoism, not of egoism, by a supreme act of egoism. That, well, I have nothing to do with this earth. I have nothing to do with this world. We can do that if we say this world does not belong to God. If on the one side we say, it is He who is here. We have books and literature and lectures talking about divine being everywhere. But when it comes to the aim of life, oh, He is everywhere, but you know, this world is illusion. So we have to ultimately find Him somewhere else. It's a kind of contradiction with which we have lived. But today we find things are turning, facing each other. We no more, today's children are much more clearer than what we were. And they seek the divine in this life. They seek the divine in relationship. They seek the divine in the pursuit of perfection of life upon earth. They seek the divine in knowledge and wisdom. They seek him in everything. Same with bliss. We don't have to go somewhere to find bliss. We have to simply discover our true nature, which is bliss. This is very interesting that uh, we think we have to get bliss by this or that object. And the tragedy of man is the gap between what he wants and what he has. This is the eternal tragedy. And what he wants and what he has can only be filled by discovering what he truly is. Because our very nature is bliss. That's why despite everything, we continue to seek for joy. That's why pain strikes us as an anomaly. The moment there is pain, we think it's contrary to life. It's an instinct to get rid of pain, to get rid of suffering. 
of course, again, we have the gospel of suffering and we talk so much about Vairagya, it is, you know, epitomized as a kind of peak of spiritual life, but not Vairagya, but fullness, fullness in the true way. It is divine who is manifesting here in material terms. And Sri said that man is only a transitional experience that the divine is having. He will go on and create a being, a being of light and not a being of ignorance as we have today, a being of bliss and not a being who is having transient happiness with suffering and always constantly trying to uh, you know, find a balance between suffering and happiness. Shubhendra uh, describes this uh, state of man very beautifully. Again, it says, man still a child in nature's mighty hands, in the succession of the moment lives. To a changing present is his narrow right. His memory stares back at a phantom past. The future flees before him as he walks. He sees imagined garments, not a face. He waits to weigh the certitude of his thoughts. He waits to weigh the consequence of his acts. He knows not whether at last he shall survive or when or perish from this earth like the mastodon and the sloth where he was king. So this is our paradox that we we are constantly living and therefore much is, you know, there is a whole gospel of Vairagya, but Sri the says, no, man is not born to disappear like that. Man is born to grow and evolve. And all yoga is essentially a concentrated self-evolution. Yoga is not so much about the outer techniques as about this inner need to outgrow our humanness and transcend our little human state. Just as the journey from childhood to adulthood is not done by certain, you know, is not done, it does not happen by drinking Maltova and Bonvita and things, stuff like that. Here it may be something else. Uh, I know the Indian names, Bonvita. Yeah, over team, right. So, you know, but children always believe and parents believe, oh my God, if I give over team, my child will grow. But children grow. They grow even in the forest, they grow even with animals, they don't take over team. I am not advertising against over team. So, <laughs> Little mothers will feel very insecure suddenly and children will feel very happy, some of them, that good, now we can, you know, be free from all this stuff. Yes, we can be free from all this stuff because it's not overthinking which makes us grow. It is this need, this constant programming that we have to grow. There is no other choice but to grow. We may grow with overthinking, we may grow without overthinking. We may grow with this system or that system, we may grow with pain. We may grow with joy, we may grow with suffering, we may grow with love through all the adamantine march goes on. This is the evolutionary journey but unfortunately when it happens unconsciously then we are unhappy, then we think it is overtime which has made us grow or this exercise then yoga assumes the form of certain outer traditional methods and practices. Oh, he did this kind of, you know, he sat in this lotus posture, recited this mantra, did these breathing exercises, this many pranayam, therefore he grew. Now there are thousands of people doing the same thing, very far from truth. And there are people who do nothing and yet they grow. Because they do something which is the most essential thing. That something is to feel the need and aspiration to outgrow our littleness. This transient earthly being, if he so will, can fill these orbs with the immortal light. And this evolutionary journey will go on. Not only till there is a new being in consciousness, but also a new form. Because as we have seen the evolutionary journey in the parable of avatars, it's not only that you know there is a change of consciousness. There is a change of consciousness. Of course, the consciousness of a uh, of a boar is more than the consciousness of a fish. There are new possibilities which have come up, and there are other which have been lost. But just as man grew out of the ape. A new being is destined to come out of man himself. And this is the new yoga, the new door of possibility that Shurabindra has opened for the earth. And then, when we participate in that consciously, it is a yoga going on in nature. It doesn't depend on us, just as the growth of the child does not depend on his taking this or that, is this belief system, is belonging to this religion or that religion, whether he has read a scripture or not, the child will grow into a man. This is destiny. So similarly, man is destined to grow into, into this new being. It does not depend on, you know, what we do with us or we don't do. But the difference is we can make the process joyous 
we can make the process happy, we can make the process beautiful, we can make the journey full of sweetness, full of delight, a conscious participation in an adventure which is taking place in this earth. A conscious yoga in a subconscious yoga which is taking place anyways in life. And when we do that, we can say that God and world are not two different but one thing who are meeting each other in different ways. Life upon earth and life beyond are not two things but one thing. The life beyond is trying to manifest itself in earthly terms. Soul and nature are not two different things but one thing. Soul is manifesting itself in newer and newer forms of nature and spirit and matter are not two things but one thing. Matter is the outer robe of the spirit and spirit is the very soul and core of matter. I think we will just pause here and if there are any questions of any type, any form, most of Can you give a definition of yoga? Possibly uh, I just mentioned it's concentrated evolution. From any point of view we see evolution of, now we can specify it further, evolution of greater and greater possibilities of consciousness which are there inherent in human beings. Let's say one follows and for this evolution one follows one or the other doorways. There are energies which are given to us and one concentrates them and opens the door to a greater possibility with regard to that energy. Take for example the mental energy. Now if the mental energy is concentrated in the seeking for truth, it suddenly becomes concentrated evolution and the truth that we are going to find maybe after millenniums, we can find it in a short span of time. Similarly, the emotional energy which is largely dissipated in uh, so many kind of you know relationships in a wrong and egoistic way, if it's concentrated on the discovery of the one face, who is the only face and who is everywhere, we, you know, it's called as the yoga of bhakti or the divine love. Similarly, our motivational energy, if it is concentrated instead of thousand motives, we have one single motive, that of serving the divine. It becomes concentrated and we become one with the divine strength which you know, works in this world. So essentially it is concentration, just like in science we concentrate energy and it becomes power. Laser is concentrated light and it has great power. Laser can do what ordinary light cannot do, it can perform surgeries. Steam, concentrate steam, it can drive an engine. Concentrate electricity which is there in the clouds anyways and it can run the cars. Similarly, concentrate sunlight and we have a whole world of solar panels today. Similarly, concentrate the human energies and it becomes human. So it's not so much a technical concentration as it is a concentration of the energies. And therefore yoga, if we have to give a shortest, Vivekananda ji gave this definition which even though absolutely 100% you know, the total harmony with regard to that, that yoga is essentially about concentrated evolution. What one would, what would happen maybe after thousands of years, a human being does it in a few years, a few months, maybe a few days. That's a broad definition. Thank you for a very good, interesting talk, Dr. Pradeh. Uh, you mentioned that man is evolving and hopefully for the better. And as the evolution keeps going, they try to reach closer and closer to perfection. I have only one questioning. Man, but he's a very egoistic. He thinks, you know, I mean, he's in every one of us. Yes. It should never come into his mind that, you know, with perfection he is God, you know. That he's, God is something always much superior, no matter how perfect a human being can attain. Okay. So, it's, we can look at it both ways. There is a certain truth in what you are saying. In the sense, if wrongly held, like wrongly held any idea, you know, any idea or any possibility can be wrongly held, like nuclear energy, you know. Rightly used, it's something which can light up the whole world. Wrongly used, it can blow up the whole world into darkness. So, similarly, this idea that human beings are evolving, if wrongly understood, it can lead to a kind of egoistic disease, a kind of mania that, you know, we are going to become some superman and definitely that would be a dangerous way to look at it. But rightly used, the truth of the thing is that it is not human beings are different from God. The fact is it is God who is taking the human experience in us. It's just that we are ignorant because that is the truth of the matter and this we, this little we is the ego 
which serves as a way. So remove the way and one ends up saying like Vivekananda, that Sohamasmi. You see the problem is that the moment Vivekananda says Sohamasmi, he is declaring a great truth that I am Brahma. But the same truth when Ravana says Sohamasmi, he is declaring the truth in a distorted way. So definitely one should be cautious that well, every truth, like every truth, it should not be misrepresented in the human consciousness, which is likely to be. And as you rightly said, there is always something which is much, much greater than the totality of the cosmos. And obviously those who have realized and really have walked the yoga in the right way, do become more and more humble. There is something very beautiful. You know, Sri Aurobindo gave this whole yoga and we uh, uh, know even in his outer and inner achievements, you know, one who could uh, realize the Par Brahman, right? he writes about Par Brahman, uh, both time and timelessness sink into that sea, time becomes a wave and space a wandering drop. And another place he writes, you know, um, my, I have wrapped the wide world in my wider self, London and Tokyo and Paris my spirit seeing are. I am man's countless misdeeds and few good deeds take place within my single heart. I am the beast he slays. The bird he feeds and saves, the sorrows of a billion takes place within my single breast. But the same Shirobindo, when he writes about God, he says, O thou who disdainest not the warm to be, nor even the clod, therefore we know by that humility that you are that you are God. So it's very true that the more we really grow towards that vastness, actually we become more humble because we realize, you know, that it's the ego which gives this feeling that you know I am someone great. And it's very dangerous, no less in a yogi. In fact, it's the mother repeatedly tells us that be careful of spiritual ego. And unfortunately, you know, you feel sad today. You know, it's very good to be in a normal life because people can tell you things. But if you wear a particular kind of attire and, you know, you move around claiming that you are a Swami, it's very dangerous because people put you on a pedestal. And even before we talk of the, you know, egoistic illness that can come by realizing union with the God, it doesn't, in fact, it dissolves. There is a much worse egoistic illness which comes by being a priest because, you know, you are a kind of mediator which is very dangerous. I mean, there is no mediator required because in everyone it's the same divine. We have to liberate man from the institutions and from the priests much more than we have to liberate him from that other thing. And then we all discover as very, but the danger is there, one has to be careful and cautious. And I must say thank you for pointing out uh, in yoga, it is very, very uh, easy because as one grows, one the powers and capacities come out in the consciousness. Uh, it is natural because any anybody who takes to yoga seriously, it develops. Now, it's very easy for a person to begin using them and misusing them and misdirecting it and uh, develop, you know, what is called a spiritual ego. And Shurabindu points out this danger repeatedly and says, you know, man can sink by the weight of the spiritual ego. It can be so dangerous. Uh, this is a small little story I just feel like sharing that there was a, uh, you know, guru and he was giving, uh, you know, a lot of lectures and one day a simple village folk came and told him, Master, a miracle has happened. By your name I have swam, I, I, I could walk on the river. And he felt very happy. So this miracles multiplied. So the master said, now is the time to show everyone how great I am. So he went in a boat in the middle of the river and called all the village, I am going to show you a miracle. And everybody stood by the side with, you know, bated breath that what is going to happen. And the master said, now the miracle will happen. And he took his name and said, you know, victory to myself and jump and drown, obviously, you know. So it's very dangerous and very easy, especially it's not just an intellectual danger, it's a very real danger. Because yoga does give lot of capacities of consciousness which are not usual and if one is not ready one can very easily so therefore the humility comes when we follow the path of surrender so Shurabindu constantly says that along with aspiration you must have this sense of constant surrender and surrender is what saves us from this problem in, in pure yoga of jhana this can happen I mean unless one agrees that other side then it's as good as that otherwise surrender is what saves us Yes. The one thing is physical evolution goes side by side with spiritual evolution. 
Ugye az a végén, aki a műsorban ért, what kind of Very interesting question, it is, and it's a very, very, uh, I mean, it's, it's a question which could, you know, one could hold a workshop on it. Uh, because what kind of evolution? Now, if we, we can just take some hints. Uh, when, you know, life had to manifest itself in matter, it was not enough that there are just some little electrical charges. There was a need to organize matter in a certain way. You know, it's like uh, we have nice roads. But an aircraft can't take off from these roads. It needs a kind of special layout for the aircraft to take off. So there was a need for matter to organize itself in such a way that it can hold at least the first impulse of life. Life is there everywhere, involved even in matter, which is evident from the you know scientists bringing out the possibilities of life which are in matter. You know, much of computer evolution is about bringing out the possibility which is there in a silicon chip, which is nothing but a grain of sand, if you know, you look at it like that. So, similarly, life to manifest in matter in a natural way, this of course is the way man has done it, but in a natural way, it requires an organization of matter in a certain way. So, in the plant, we find that there are these little columns which are able to support the life force climbing up, but just a little life force, not enough. Now, these little columns are forerunners of neurons which are going to one day become nerves through which life force can really run and take off like many aircrafts you know taking off from Dallas Washington because you know it's it's uh, it's geared now for the life impulse to pass but that takes millenniums for these nerves to undergo a little modification what is that modification from chemical they change begin to change into electrical impulses you know there are kind of changes which take place in the brain cell and the brain becomes a complex of nervous system. It's not just nerves, but it is nervous system in a very complex way that now thought can begin to manifest on a material basis. Now thought exists as a possibility, but it manifests. Similarly, for human body to evolve into a new body so that a still greater light and greater and greater light and greater and greater consciousness, greater and greater ananda, you know, bliss uh, can manifest, it needs to be reorganized again. This process is going to take time and the mother gave a whole blueprint about this process and she the whole yoga about you know how man can participate in the journey. But we can just see some hints, possibly maybe the chemical neurons are going to be replaced, matter itself is undergoing to change. It will become subtle. With each evolutionary step we see that matter becomes more subtle, little more refined. So it's bound to become little more refined. Uh, certain things which are very crude about human body are bound to disappear, which is again happening, you know, the, the women and the men. There is a kind of change taking place and it's difficult to say, you know, the world is moving towards a kind of unisex, it's very strange, even through paradoxical ways. So many kind of changes are going to take place uh, in the human body before that final transition. And therefore, Shirobindo said, when people asked him how long, he said, you people think that it's just a question of bringing down the supramental truth. It is also I have to prepare the earth, make it ready, lay the wiring so that it doesn't blow up once the truth descends. So, uh, but the wiring is being laid, we can see many early markers uh, in human beings, which is an indication of this new possibility. It may take maybe a few centuries, but evolution is like that, that there are centuries of preparation and suddenly a bursting forth, what is called as a solitary leap. So possibly a lot of things are being prepared in human consciousness, and a day will come when this matter itself will become very fine. Uh, it would be some, uh, some certain things which mother has said about this new being will be one, <coughs> there will be luminosity. It will be a matter which is luminous, self-luminous. And second, plasticity. It will not be, you know, a kind of rigid with arthritis and all kinds of things, you know, which you probably suffer. It will have spontaneous immunity against illness because it is based on truth consciousness and not on ignorance. And um, these are some of the possibilities which are going to emerge in that new being with a new body. In the context of evolution, uh, in the time frame of Vedas, Upanishads, and the Gita, uh, could you shed some light on that? The Vedic period, Upanishadic period, the Gita period, and in the context of the evolution. Yeah. So, as I see them, always between two epochs, there is a 
time when the original knowledge truth is lost. We can look at it from several points of view. One point which comes straight away and it is rediscovered. So after Vedas, we find that towards the close of the Vedic period, where the Chandogya Upanishad is, you know, almost comes into existence and a little before that, there is a tendency for the Vedic truth original to reduce into Karankandas, you know, becomes just a ritual, outer uh, acts and things like that. So once again, there is a resurgence, after a whole period of decadence, there is a resurgence and again in Upanishads, it's very interesting that the 12th principal Upanishads don't talk of Karankandas at all and barring Nilrutra which describes the vision of Shiva, uh, other Upanishads are so much intrinsic, in fact they are extremely scientific, extremely intrinsic, I mean Kain Upanishad is a treatise in science. If somebody really is, you know, fascinated, uh, you know, the mind cannot know it yet by that mind, you know, the nature of mind, the nature of speech, the nature of life, we find once again the original truth being rescued and, uh, you know, but then again after the Upanishad, there is a tendency again for it to degenerate into the uh, Puranas and, you know, again, once again the mythological figures which, where the meaning is lost in symbols and then the symbol is lost in the outer story and the story is lost in the accreditation which you know accumulate around it, uh, accreditation. Then an attempt to rescue the form of Tantra which is very different in its approach. So far it's the Vedantic line, then there is the Tantric line where once again it is very scientific playing with the forces of nature and using these forces as steps of an evolutionary ladder. Again there is a degeneration of the Tantra into the Vamarga, Yudha Fall and in Shirodhanda, we find a grand synthesis of the Vedanta and the Tantra. He talks about the one truth, he talks about the forces of nature, he talks about the Brahman, he speaks about the Shakti. So this is, but when he says that these were preparatory phases for the human consciousness and therefore he gives the truth which is a step after what traditional Vedanta hints. It hints, even Gita hints at this evolutionary possibility. Gita hints very much about all this being the divine. Even this fallen world, you know, when Sri Krishna speaks about the Jivan Mukta, when he speaks about that I am Bhai as well as Abhay, both. I am also Chal, you know, he speaks about so many things in the lower nature, which is essentially, he speaks of Paraprakriti Jiva Bhuta, you know, where the uh, Supreme uh, Mother Consciousness has become this Jiva. So there are hints, but he doesn't, uh, you know, he goes to the threshold, but doesn't reveal it, because human consciousness is not ready. So, it's, firstly, it's not that the Vedic Rishis were not aware. They spoke about the earth and the heaven becoming equal and one. The whole aspiration, uh, it speaks about the fire which brings the gods down upon us. What else is this but a terrestrial perfection? The Rishi asked for Ashwa and Go. Ashwa is force. Go is light. That's therefore becomes the word Gupta, Gopal, Gop, Gopniya. You know, all these words comes from the root Go, which is essentially light and not... Uh, you know, the way we understand is cow. Uh, so, again Ashwa, we have Ashwapati, Ashwamed, the Ashwa sacrifice, which is essentially the, the force, the force aspect of the divine. The light and the force being two aspects, which the Rishis ask, and they ask for earthly existence. So, if we look at the Vedas, originally it is the same aspiration, again in the Upanishads, again in the Gita, the idol of the Jivan Mukta, and Shurvinda brings it, and takes it to its logical culmination. But it is also true that between the two ages, between each age, there is a cycle when the truth is lost as if in a mass of formulas and rituals. It is as if buried inside a whole mire, but uh, it is rescued again and comes up. So this is an evolutionary cycle which is like a spiral. But again this fall has a purpose. Shurabindo says that nothing is without a purpose. So because we have explored matter to its fullest, Today, we are in a better position actually to take this leap of, you know, evolution on a material basis than what would have been possible maybe even 200 years back. Today, it's easier for human consciousness to admit the possibility of evolution on a material basis. And this admission in the human consciousness is a very, uh, is itself a first indicator, is itself a requirement because if we don't admit the possibility, it doesn't happen. So the very fact that we have explored matter to its depth and discovered, you know, its powers, potential, the very fact that evolution is now a common word, you know, despite people resisting it, still, you know, most people accept evolution in some form or the other, even at least in this life, you know, otherwise, 
schools have no meaning if there is no evolution. You know, education is about evolution of the child and bringing out the possibilities. So the, this very thing has prepared human consciousness for this evolutionary leap consciously. So this is the whole story in a very small nutshell. Of course, this question again is a, uh, I said a workshop theme, you know, uh, all about the Vedas and Upanishad. We could just go on for hours only on that. Each Upanishad is a marvel. I mean, it's really a marvel. And Shobindra has said so much of new light. You know, uh, just before coming here, I was translating some of the Vedas and Upanishad into Hindi, and it's really marvelous how this whole idea of the horse sacrifice has been misrepresented. We have uh, TV serials where they show actually a horse wearing a you know, going from place to place. But the heart sacrifice is so significant, it's something happening in the human consciousness. When you leave that, it's a totally a new revolution. So, this is a nutshell about evolutionary cycle. Vishavita Vedas. Shobhinda is not contradicting, he is fulfilling the Vedic aspiration of the Rishis, taking it to its logical extreme. He is also fulfilling the materialist aspiration for perfection of matter. He is also fulfilling the dream of the religions to bring down the kingdom of heaven on earth. So the beauty of Sri is that there is a grand reconciliation and a synthesis. It's not a, you know, his contradicting something else. What he brings is a larger truth in which all these truths find their own respective place and not a new sect or a new ideology. That's why in the beginning, you know, that what Sri represents is not a teaching, not even a revelation. It's not a sect, it's not a religion, but a truth which is larger and comprehensive where everything finds its place. Vedanta and Tantra, no less than materialism and science. Uh, religion, in its truest sense, no less than you know the ordinary man's everyday life. So that is the reconciliation of Shri. And that's where all life becomes Yoga. It's not only that the man who is meditating on the Himalayan peaks and you know the man worshipping a particular deity, who is doing yoga? The scientist sitting in his laboratory the so-called ordinary man going through the little problems of life, the man who is you know, busy only with earning a livelihood and can think of nothing else, are also engaged in yoga. It's just that they are not aware of yoga. And even a religionist may not be aware of yoga. He may be just doing it just mechanically. But any of these people at any of the point, the moment they become aware and conscious of this great need, they begin the journey.